0: Our um, passage this morning is 2nd Corinthians chapter 5 verses 1 through uh, 11a. For we know that if the earthly tent which is our house is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, also we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. This is the word of the Lord. Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given it to us to tell us about you and to show us how that we should love you and live our lives in this world. So, Father, we come to you as needy people needing to hear from you this morning. We pray that you would open up your word to us and that you would show us yourself that we might love you and serve you more. Be with Tom. In Jesus' name, amen. Good
1: morning. Good morning. So, this guy walks into an appointment with the psychiatrist, and the doc says, Tell me how you've been doing. The guy says, well doc, sometimes I feel like a wigwam and sometimes I feel like a teepee. The doc says, I know what your problem is, you're too tense. (laughs) Yeah, I promise, I promise, (laughs) I I, I promise not to make a habit of telling bad jokes at the beginning of my messages or any kind of jokes at all, but but since this passage talks about tense and groaning, (laughs) a groaner about tense, right? All right. Last time, at the beginning of, uh, of chapter four, and once again, at, at right at the toward the end of chapter four, Paul said, "Therefore, we do not lose heart." And he gave us four compelling reasons for us, as the children of God, not to lose heart in the face of the very real hardship and weakness that we all experience during our earthly lives. The first of those four points, the first of those four causes for us not to lose heart is that the light that we bear to this world and to one another as believers is the true light that this world filled with darkness uh, most profoundly and desperately needs. Paul calls it the light of the glory of the knowledge of God in the face of Christ. That is an amazing light. The Secondly, Our weakness is not a disadvantage when it comes to our usefulness to God to accomplish His eternally valuable purposes in the lives of other people. In fact, our weakness is Christ's showcase. Third, purely by God's doing, death in us produces life in others. And that life is the life of Christ. And finally, the temporary light affliction that we endure for Christ's sake and that we endure because of the physical effects of the curse that we share with unbelievers is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Those are good reasons not to lose heart. Now in the first half of chapter 5, Paul continues to give us compelling cause not to be disheartened but courageous during our brief time in this mortal flesh. And his contrast between the temporary and the eternal continues to be very much at the heart of this exhortation not to lose heart. He starts chapter 5 by contrasting the temporary and the eternal dwelling places that the soul and spirit of every believer will inhabit. In the first verse, Paul says, for we know that if the earthly tent which is our house is torn down we have a building from god a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens the first thing to notice about how paul begins this chapter is the words for we know For we know this isn't something that might be true this isn't something we wish for this is something that we as the children of god no, to be true, based on the promise of the God who cannot lie. Who is the we? Well, throughout this passage, just as throughout Paul's letters, whenever he does not specify that he's talking just about himself and his co workers, he's talking about the church. He's talking about the saints to whom he is, write, is writing these letters everyone who has been declared righteous in the eyes of god by grace alone through faith alone in christ alone is given this promise that he's presenting to us now, paul whose own vocation was tent making like uh, likens the dwelling place that the soul and spirit of a believer occupies here and now to an earthly tent and then he refers to the dwelling place that we will inhabit an eternity as a quote a building from god a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens the contrast between the temporary nature of a tent and the permanent nature of a building is not accidental here on paul's point on paul's part he's expanding on a powerful contrast that he presented in the last 3 verses of chapter 4 which has one one, been one of the most formative passages in my life. Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal. That means temporary. But the things which are not seen are eternal. Eternal. Now he says, while we're in this temporary earthly tent, we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. Paul speaks of this very same groaning and this same longing, this same eager anticipation in Romans chapter 8. If you're not familiar with that passage, we're not going to spend a bunch of time in that passage, but please, please get familiar with Romans chapter 8. In that passage, Paul tells us that we must share in the suffering of Christ in order to share in His glory. And so we shall. He likens the whole of our Christian lives to the pangs of childbirth. But at the end of that suffering comes, quote, the revealing of the sons of God, our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body, the redemption of our body. By the way, that verse tells us very clearly that the bodies that you and I as Christians inhabit right now are not yet redeemed. Right, But that redemption day is very surely coming. Paul turns the focus of every believer away from temporary things to our glorification day when these mortal bodies will be raised from the dead and transformed from mortal to immortal. On that day and from then on, no residue of the corruption of sin and the curse will remain in us. We who have already been made fit for the kingdom of God spiritually by the grace of God will finally be made fit physically for the kingdom of God to dwell in the presence of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ for all eternity. In fact, in the presence of our triune God. We'll be made like Him, like Jesus, to dwell forever with Him together with all of his redeemed ones in the place that Jesus went to prepare for us. Beloved, that is where our hope is fixed. It's not fixed on anything that we see with these physical eyes. Paul says in Romans 8, hope that is seen is not hope. If you're hoping for something you can see with your eyes, Something you can get your hands on here and now? Your hope is misplaced. The world does its very best to pound into us that our hope must be fixed on laying hold of prosperity, security, health, and significance through our own efforts. And while we're still breathing. In fact, in this in this age in which so much of humanity is, believes that, that we are nothing but star stuff, that we are nothing but but the mechanics of our existence. Uh, <laughs> this is all we got. They say this is all we got. If your hope's not here, you're, you're done. God tells us, you know, the one who made us, he tells us that to focus our attention and affection on laying hold of those kinds of things during the brief and fleeting vapor of this earthly life is to squander this life and to completely miss the reason that God left us here after saving us. God tells us through Paul that this short earthly life is supposed to provoke in us a constant and pervasive longing, indeed a groaning, so great that we can't even put it into words. He talks about this in Romans 8. A yearning for the far better situation that we know, we know is coming. This isn't something we're wishing for. We know this because of the precious and magnificent promises of God that he is very clearly and repeatedly made to us as his beloved children in his word. Here in 2 Corinthians 5, 4, Paul says, For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed in order that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. In order that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. You know where Paul gets that phrase, swallowed up? I'm convinced he gets it from Isaiah chapter 25. That passage, Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9, is a beautiful, this is a magnificent promise of the banquet that God is preparing for us. Listen to verses, Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9, and Yahweh of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. And on this mountain, He will swallow up the covering which is over all the peoples. Even the veil which is stretched over all the nations. And then he tells us what that covering, what that veil is. He says, He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord will wipe tears from all faces and He will remove the reproach of His people from all the earth for Yahweh has spoken. And it will be said in that day, behold, This is our God for whom we have waited that He might save us. This is Yahweh for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. This Yahweh is Jesus. God has been promising to swallow up the curse of death that He imposed on mankind and creation ever since the day that He declared that curse. Speaking of this same certainty that we who believe in Jesus have before God, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 6.19, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul. A hope both sure and steadfast. And one which enters within the veil. Are we paying attention to what what God is saying to us about, about the believer's hope? He says it's a hope both sure and steadfast. That means it's certain and it won't change. Brothers and sisters, is, is your confidence that these promises apply to you a sure and steadfast confidence? Or are you still struggling to lay hold of enduring assurance that you are destined for the presence and the kingdom of God? I I have had many, many conversations with people who are struggling for assurance and yet their gospel is rock solid. They believe that they deserve only eternal condemnation. That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only one. They put their trust in Him alone to save them. But they don't have any assurance. That's not what God intends for His children. He intends a hope that is both sure and... And steadfast. Verse 5 of this morning's passage is supposed to sear that certainty into our hearts so that we cannot turn away from it. Paul says, Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. He gave to us the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, as a pledge. And the word pledge means down payment. Back in the old days, you used to put things on layaway and you'd put a down payment to hold it for you until you gave the rest of the payment and then you could walk away with whatever you bought. When God makes a down payment, he finishes paying what he bought, paying for what he bought. God's down payment to you and me is the indwelling presence of his Holy Spirit. This is a repeated promise in Paul's letters and here in second corinthians chapter 1 verses 21 and 22 Paul said now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us anointed us is God who also sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge a down payment the clearest instance of this same astonishing promise is in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14 this is one that blew me out of my socks when I was a baby Christian. It says, In him you also, you you Gentiles as well as us Jews, in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the good news of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. What a promise! You heard the gospel, you believed the gospel of your salvation, and God sealed you. He put His seal on you. He said, This one's mine! And that seal is in the person of the Holy Spirit who is given as the down payment of all the rest of our inheritance. And you've heard me say this before, but guys, if the down payment of of our eternal inheritance is the person of the Holy Spirit, what should we expect the rest of our inheritance to be? The triune God. Heaven is not heaven without the presence of God. The indwelling Holy Spirit is God's down payment to every believer of all the rest of your in- eternal inheritance. One more verse about that down payment is in Ephesians 4, verse 30, and it's fascinating. Listen to this very short verse. Listen to, as I read it, listen for what the motivation is for godliness. It says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Brothers and sisters, rock-solid certainty is the birthright of every man, woman, and child who trusts in Jesus. That certainty is the ground of all gratitude. That certainty and the gratitude that it produces in us is the bedrock of all practical holiness during our time on this cursed earth. And God means for all of His children to have that Certainty. Horatius Bonner talks about how the... He was an early 19th century uh, Scottish preacher. He talks about how the, the certainty that God intends as the birthright of every believer was taken away by the official church of his day. And then it was sold back to individuals. And he says... That was the Catholic church, but there are Protestants doing the same thing. He said that in the 19th century. Beloved, if the word hope that you see in the New Testament means anything less to you than absolute certainty of your eternal destiny, you have an unbiblical definition of the word if you have trusted in Jesus. You have an unbiblical definition of the word and you have turned the anchor of your soul into a paperweight. This very same certainty is the ground and the cause of the believer's courage to live for Christ without fear of any created thing or any created being. In verses 6-8 to of 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight, We are of good courage, I say, and we prefer, we prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Is that what you prefer? To be absent from the body and at home with the Lord? Paul's very important point in those three verses is about the cause of our courage. In order to understand how that cause and effect works, we need to understand what he's telling us here about what happens when our soul and our spirit depart our body. Now, God did not create human beings to be incorporeal, in other words, to be bodiless. The first two two chapters of the Bible tell us that just as God prepared the physical place for man before he created man, So also he created a physical body for Adam out of the dust of the ground before he breathed into that body the breath of life, the life that originates from and proceeds from God only. Both the physical and the immaterial parts of a man are wired into who God designed human beings to be. I'm not going to spend time this morning going into the distinction between soul and spirit, although that's a very worthwhile discussion to have. What I want to be clear about here is that for believers as well as for unbelievers, the separation of the immaterial part of, of man from the physical body at death is of necessity a temporary state of affairs for both believers and unbelievers. A bodiless soul does not match up with God's designs for human beings any more than a soulless body. God's perfect design, His perfect design and intention for humans becomes very clear when we look to the perfect man in His present and exalted eternal condition. That man is the resurrected and ascended Jesus. When the eternally existing Son of God came from heaven to earth and took on our humanness, He was born as a child in a physical body. Since then, the only time that He was separated from His physical body was during the three days between His death and His resurrection. On the third day after He was crucified and buried, His His body was miraculously transformed from mortal to immortal and was raised from the dead. The Son of God, who had existed from eternity past, was reunited with his body from which he will never be separated again. Jesus is eternally incarnate. When he ascended into heaven to return to his Father's right hand, he did so bodily. Just as Jesus was separated from his physical body between his death and resurrection, so shall you and I be. For Jesus, that separation lasted until the third day. For us, well, none of us knows how long we will be separated from our physical body. For the believers who are still walking the earth when Jesus returns to raise us up, there won't be any interval but for most believers, there's a period of separation. But we need to know it's only temporary. Every human being who has died, whether as a believer in Jesus Christ or as an unbeliever, will be resurrected and reunited with his or her physical body. Some will be resurrected to eternal life. Others will be resurrected to eternal condemnation. I'll tell you at this point that I decided uh, when I was working through all this to devote a separate message, it'll be the next message in this series, to a deeper dive into the whole matter of judgment. Uh, The judgment of unbelievers and the judgment of believers. Um, There's no way I could say all that that I wanted to say about that this morning without going very far afield from the passage, so I decided to Try to address the theme of judgment in a separate message now here's what god intends for us who trust in jesus to know about the temporary interval between our separation from our physical bodies and our reunion with our perfected and resurrected physical bodies on the day that you and i become temporarily separated from our physical bodies, we will from then on and forever be at home with the Lord, okay? Some Christians whom I love and respect believe in what's known as soul sleep. Uh, They believe that when a Christian dies, his or her soul goes into sleep mode, like, you know, your computer. (laughs) Until the day when Christ returns and raises the dead and then the living One of the several reasons that I don't hold to that view is because of what Paul says right here. See, once I get my resurrection body, I will not be absent from the body and at home with the Lord. I'll be in my perfected body and at home with the Lord. The only time I'll be, as Paul talks about here, absent from the body and at home with the Lord will be from the moment after my last breath in this mortal body Until the moment I get my resurrection body. You with me? I'm convinced that on the day that I die, in the blink of an eye, I will see my Savior and my Master face to face. And I will be with Him forever. And I can only imagine what that will be like. There are several other passages I could go to that I believe confirm that understanding, but... For the sake of time, I'll I'll leave it at that for this morning. Paul's point here in 2 Corinthians 5-8 through is that our confidence, our certainty that when our bodies die, we will finally and forever be home with the Lord, that certainty is the cause of our courage here and now. Instead of losing heart because of the opposition of this godless world to the Christ whom we represent, Instead of losing heart because these not yet redeemed bodies are quite literally decaying day by day, as Paul said in chapter 4, verse 16, we are encouraged, in-couraged, through this marvelous promise of God so that we may live and speak boldly for Christ. Instead of ducking for cover when threats come, We stand firm because we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Instead of shrinking back in an effort to avoid the hardships that following Christ will surely bring to us, we actually rejoice in those hardships knowing that, as Peter says in 1 Peter 4, that to the degree that we share in Christ's sufferings, we are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon us. Instead of lamenting our great weakness and concluding that it disqualifies us to serve as ambassadors for Christ, we rejoice in our weakness. That's what Paul says he does. We rejoice in our weakness knowing that the very That that very weakness is what proves to all the surpassing greatness of the power that is manifested in us is of God and not from ourselves. That's chapter 4, verse 7, 2 Corinthians 2. All the while, we, like Paul, prefer to be absent from the body and at home with the Lord and I'm ready for that. I'm not crazy about dying, but I'm not afraid of death. We groan for that day. We long for that day. We eagerly anticipate that day. Why would we ever have any cause to fear leaving these cursed and dying bodies? That day will be the best day we have ever known we're not supposed to rush it right like Paul we're supposed to be we're supposed to be joyful that God has left us here for a time so we can be eternally useful before we go to be with him I want to be useful as long as he sees fit but not one second longer in verse 9 Paul says Therefore also we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. And what's that therefore, therefore? It points us right back to what Paul's just been saying. In light of the certainty that when our physical bodies die, we will step immediately and forever into the presence of the lover of our souls. We who belong to Jesus, therefore have cause not only to be courageous but to be grateful beyond measure our lives should overflow with gratitude toward God and that gratitude should produce words and works that seek always to please the one who died to make us his own to please him not to appease him Jesus did that but to please him Colossians 2 verses 6 and 7 says as you Therefore, have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Then he tells us what that looks like. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Overflowing with gratitude. Rooted and built up in Christ, established in faith, overflowing with gratitude. That's the Christian life in a beautiful nutshell. If that's not your experience of the Christian life, something needs to be fixed. Christians who see the Christian life as burdensome and not joyful, what's missing there is gratitude. Once again, we come back to the necessity of assurance for godliness. Faith produces assurance. There, those are two sides of the same coin. Right? If of Hebrews says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. When you believe God's promises more than you believe yourself, you won't struggle for assurance. You'll overflow with gratitude and you'll delight in pleasing God. Brothers and sisters, you will never be grateful for what you're not not sure that you have. Doubt does not produce gratitude. Doubt has a very appropriate place in the life of an unbeliever and doubt can have a very appropriate place in the life of a believer who has turned his back on the Lord. But God's intention for every child of His is that we will know that it is eternally well with our souls. You will never be grateful for what you're not sure that you have. Last point. Is the fear that turns believers into evangelists. In the last verse and a half of this morning's passage, verses 10 to 11a, Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. That's the evangelist part. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. And then later at the end of of chapter 5, he says, we urge you be reconciled to God. Again, we're going to look more deeply at the matter of final judgment next time, but it's critically important that we don't miss or misconstrue what Paul is saying here. If we treat these verses as if they in any way mitigate or reduce the certainty of all the promises Paul has just just so beautifully set before us, will tear the heart right out of this great passage. And it is the tendency of our old nature to do exactly that. In case you haven't noticed, your old nature despises the free grace of God. Our new nature cherishes and treasures the free grace of God. In John five twenty one and 22, Jesus said, Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. And the next verse says, In order that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. The popular notion that Jesus is way too loving to pass condemning judgment on anyone is as foreign to what the Bible actually says about Jesus as foreign gets. Jesus said, all judgment has been given into my hands. Jesus is the judge of all. Of all. In John 3, verse 18, Jesus said, he who believes in him And the Son is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. If the eternal condemnation of God is no longer upon you, that's because something changed because you started out condemned. If that condemnation is not upon you, it's because God brought you to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, those who do not fear Jesus as judge cannot claim to trust Him as Savior. How can you say Jesus is my Savior if you don't agree with Him about what He saved you from? The salvation that Jesus died to secure for us is salvation from His judgment, which we all deserve in full, terrible, and eternal measure. I want to make this next point as clearly as I can possibly make it. The future judgment of all who reject Jesus Christ until their final breath will be a judgment of eternal condemnation. But the future judgment of all who believe in Jesus Christ will have nothing to do with eternal condemnation. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. It will also, our, our future judgment will also have nothing to do with determining whether or not we have eternal life. You know how I know that? Because Jesus says we already have it. I'm going to read John 5, 22 and 23 again. This time I'm going to add the verse just before it and just after it. Please listen carefully to what Jesus is saying here. He intends for us to know this. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son in order that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. And then listen to verse 24. Listen carefully. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. The word passed means crossed over. Has already crossed over out of death into eternal life. Never to face condemning judgment. Jesus intends for His children to know this. If you believe in Jesus... Are you waiting for eternal life? Or do you already have it? He says you already have it. See, the death of your physical body is just a little bump in the road. You already have eternal life. God wants you to know that. What does Paul mean here in 2 Corinthians 4.10 when he speaks about the judgment seat of Christ before which we must all appear? Well, the we is the we he's been talking to throughout the, the letter. That's the saints. What does he mean when he says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Well, again, the we is is believers, and the future judgment that awaits us as believers is a judgment of rewards, not condemnation. It's the same future judgment that Paul spoke of in 1 Corinthians 2 and in 1 Corinthians 4. We're going to look at all of that in more detail next time, so stay tuned. But we shouldn't leave this morning without understanding what fear, what fear Paul is talking about here in 2 Corinthians 5.11 when he says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. I'm convinced he's talking about the very same fear that Peter talks about in 1 Peter chapter 1. And this passage is a mind blower, if you're not familiar with it. It says, Therefore, this is 1 Peter 1:13 1, to 21, please listen. Therefore, gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, you shall be holy yourselves in all of your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Leviticus 19.11 and if you address as Father, this is great. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each man's works, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on this earth. Now, if you stop right there, you go, uh oh. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on this earth. Uh oh. Keep reading, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life, which you inherited from your forefathers, but you were redeemed with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he has appeared in these last times for the sake of you... And listen, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Is that talking to believers or unbelievers? Believers. Beloved, the believer's godly fear that Peter sets before us in those verses is not a fear that we might somehow lose our eternal inheritance of everlasting relationship and communion with God, or that we don't have it. The believer's godly fear is that we will live in a manner that undervalues the measureless price of the salvation that we know we have received from God. That price which is the precious, poured out blood of the Son of God. There are two godly fears that turn believers into evangelists. Neither includes any doubt whatsoever about our eternal destiny. The first is the fear that we will undervalue the measureless cost of our salvation. And the second is the fear that the lost people around us will face the judge of all mankind with their sins still on their own shoulders. Therefore, beloved, Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Dear Father, your promises to us are precious and magnificent indeed. The sure and certain destiny that you have secured for us who believe in Jesus is the ground and the cause of our grateful service as ambassadors of Jesus and of our courage in serving thank you O my father for giving us your son and leaving your spirit till our work on earth is done in the precious and magnificent name of jesus we pray these things amen